Doug and I think Eric were out uh, witnessing this past week. And, you know, we have people here who live on mission. They're out knocking on doors and they're sharing the gospel. And we had a couple people pray to receive Christ. So that is uh, something I want to celebrate this morning, right? Because <clears throat> it's one thing to gather on a Sunday morning and study how we see that happen in the Bible. It's another thing to go out and put it into action. And so I'm thankful for brothers and sisters that do that. They are focused on reaching our community. And First Baptist Mount Healthy is a part of the city of Cincinnati, right? We're one of 52 unique neighborhoods that make up this, this city, Porkopolis of Cincinnati. And we see a focus and an emphasis on reaching cities in the Bible. That's what we're going to see today. Uh, we're going to see how the Spirit directed Paul and Silas and Timothy to go to Philippi. It was a Roman colony. It was kind of one of the leading epicenters in Europe. And we see how God takes the gospel and he plants it there through Paul. And then we see later, about 10 years later, when we see the book of Philippians written, we see that there's a thriving church there in Philippi. Well, we get to see the birth of that today in Acts chapter 16. And so uh, if you've been around, especially, you know, Southern Baptist life for the last 15 years or so, there's been a heavy emphasis on planting churches in cities. I'm part of the reason that, that that's why I'm in Cincinnati is because I, we follow God's call here to, to do that work of mission here in the inner city. And, uh, and the question was, why focus on cities? It's not that rural areas are not important. I grew up in a rural area. They are vitally important. As a matter of fact, the majority of churches that make up our convention, right, are 60 people or less. That is the work of ministry being done by people in small churches. So it's nothing to scoff at. And a lot of those are in rural areas. But there's a huge need for churches in the city. And we are already a church here in the city. We are already a thriving community of people, of diversity here in our city. So the question is, why focus on cities? Well, I think we see from the Bible that cities are vitally important to the direction of the world. Like, as cities go, so goes the culture. That's, you know, worldview, art, music, education, law, government, politics, all of it are headquartered mainly in cities. And so it profoundly has influence on, on a lot of things. And God loves people, right? And people live in cities, so I think it's safe to say that God also loves cities. And here's some, some statistics for you. The United Nations reports that 70% of the world's population will be living in urban contexts by the year 2050. That's not that far away. 70% of the world population, right? It is estimated that 8 million people move into the cities of the world every two months. Think about that. God is drawing people to cities. And to give you some perspective, the U.S., only has one city in the top 10 biggest cities in the world. Only one. And only four in the top 50. So we have some big cities here, but we are nothing when compared to the rest of the world. We often lose sight of how urban the world is becoming. And so if we look at just our city in particular, Cincinnati is a strategic 
geographic cultural center. I mean, we're a cultural center for both Ohio and Kentucky. Within just a short driving distance, uh, we have cities like Columbus and Cleveland. We go down into Louisville. You can go over into Indiana and Indianapolis. Uh, we have all these cities that, that are kind of like on our periphery in our geographical location. And believe it or not, those cities are home to roughly 7.3 million of the estimated 16 million people that live in both Ohio and Kentucky alone. There's a lot of people within our immediate vicinity. And if saturated with the gospel, sharing the gospel, which is where you see churches birthed out of, if we would just share the gospel with people, Cincinnati could become an epicenter of a spiritual awakening for millions of people. I believe that. That's why we're still here laboring in our city. It's important. Also, Cincinnati's spiritual landscape, if you take a moment to pause and think about that, is, is kind of desolate. You might be thinking, well, wait a second. We're like one of three churches here on a corner. We are. But let's think through this for a second. Steeples and cathedrals from all kinds of faith traditions are all around our city. But over half, 56.4% roughly, of the city's 1.6 million people claim no church affiliation at all. So think about that. You can throw a rock and hit another church across the street, but over half the people in our city, via a survey done by the North American Mission Board, say that they are not connected to any church. They claim no religious affiliation. And if we think about it from an SBC perspective, the convention that we belong to, that we work alongside of to do mission together, <clears throat> there are roughly one, you know, SBC church for every 59,000 people in Cincinnati. So if God sent a revival and only wanted people to come to SBC churches, we would have to fit 59,000 people up in here. Can we do that? No, we can't which is why we need to focus on saturating and sharing and scattering the gospel across our city. So the statistics are clear. Cincinnati is in desperate need of the gospel. This is why we're here. It's why we do what we do week in and week out. It's why brothers like Doug and Eric go out and knock on doors. It's why I try to have conversations with people where I, I work throughout the week and, and, and just try to share Jesus with people and point them in the direction of salvation. And so that is why we are here, laboring alongside of God to see him made famous in our city. And one thing that should grab our attention in this passage that we're about to dive into is the supernatural work, how the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in planting this local church in Philippi and planting the gospel there. It's more important than just planting like a church and, and having a church name. It, it's planting the gospel. It's sowing the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit will take that and grow uh, people into to, to church families. And so there are two main takeaways that I want to see today in our text, all right? Two main takeaways about reaching a city through the direction of the Holy Spirit. And the first one is this. The Spirit gives His vision. It's not just a vision, it's His vision for reaching people. And I can't seem to read this passage without thinking of playing red light, green light. <clears throat> you guys remember that? Red light, green light. Right? You, you pause, and I've played this with my kids, and it's always real fun. Um, but if we look at this, let's, uh, let's look at the red light situation here 
in the book of Acts. Now, before we pick up the context here, Paul has kind of had a dispute with Barnabas. You know, they went out on that first missionary journey, saw great things happen. They had a dispute over a young man named John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take him on this next trip, and Paul wasn't so hot on that idea because Paul's like, hey, he left us high and dry on that first one. Uh, I don't want to take him. And they disagreed over that. And it says they disagreed sharply, but they are brothers in Christ, and they, they divided and said, okay, I'm going to go one way. So Barnabas and, and John Mark went one way. They sailed to Cyprus. And then we see <clears throat> Paul and Silas take off and go a different direction. And they pick up a young man named Timothy along the way. So that's kind of where we're picking up here in verse 6. So let's look at the red light situation here. The Spirit prevents Paul from going to Asia. All right, here's what happens. Look at verse 6. It says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to that. To speak the word in Asia forbidden by the Spirit. And then verse 7, and after they came to Misa, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus, which is another way of saying the Holy Spirit, did not permit them. So no matter where they turned, the Holy Spirit was shutting the door because they weren't going in the direction that, that the Holy Spirit wanted them to go. So there's no specific explanation given for how the work was hindered here by the Spirit. I mean, it could just be that nobody showed up whenever they got to town. It could be that they were literally you know, like stopped by somebody forcibly from going. It doesn't tell us. It just says that they were forbidden. They were, they were not permitted. They were shut down by the Holy Spirit. Could have been any number of things. But I think we would be correct in speculating that Paul was probably discouraged and disappointed. I mean, think about it. They already went on one mission trip and saw all this stuff happen. And here they are out again trying to do the same thing in different regions, trying to preach the gospel where it's never been before, and they keep getting shut down. And I could imagine that they were disappointed. Back up to verse 5, you'll see that things have been going extremely well for Paul and his team on the second missionary journey. In verse 5, it says, So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Ministry was happening. God was moving. Things were, were really on a roll for them. And given this picture of success, right, where, where you see a lot of people involved, I'm sure it was an incredible surprise for these doors of opportunity to slam shut without any explanation from the Lord. I mean, think about that. But as Scripture eventually reveals, it was God's intention for the people of Asia to hear the gospel at a later time. We see that in Acts chapter 18, and then we see some more context on that in 1 Peter chapter 1. But personally, right, so let's think about this on a personal level, I can relate to Paul's discouraging red light situation here. You guys ever been doing what you feel like the Lord wants you to do? You stepped out and you're, you're doing exactly what you feel like God's called you to do, and then all of a sudden you're just stonewalled. Things don't go for you at all. Things don't go well. Things fall apart. Things are incredibly difficult. Anybody ever experienced that before, especially if you've been serving in church or trying to do what God has called you to do? Um, there have been numerous times over the past nine years that, that we have been a part of Cincinnati of serving the city where God has closed doors in our face and told us not yet. Not yet. And like Paul, I have been disappointed. I've been discouraged, right? I have literally laid awake at night wondering why God was preventing this thing from succeeding when he had called us to do it. 
and you begin to pray through, Lord, what does success look like? And being obedient to what God is calling you to do is the most successful thing that you can do. He is the one that's in charge of growing his church, as we're going to see here in just a minute. But I still believe God is faithful. I think that we, I was just talking with Doug at the back before we got going with worship today, and we were just talking and and smiling and and just looking at how God has been moving here at First Baptist Mount Healthy in recent days, in recent weeks and months. It's been amazing to see the diversity he's bringing to us, the, the, the salvations we've seen in people, baptisms, people joining the church and saying, I want to identify with Mount Healthy as my faith family. It's been so cool to see all of that happen. God is faithful. And one thing I've learned through this entire experience is that when God puts the brakes on with this unexpected red light in your life, it means he is keeping you from deviating from his intended will. He's keeping things on track. We might not understand it, but he is the one in control. So red light situation. Let's look at the green light, though. The green light situation is the Spirit tells Paul to go to Macedonia, all right? And the light turns from red to green in verse 9. Verse 9 says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So imagine that. You're laying awake one night and you have this vision of somebody pleading for you to come and help them. Macedonia wasn't even on their radar. They were trying to get into Asia. They, weren't, they were going the complete opposite direction. And God literally gives Paul a new vision, a literal vision. And he actually sees, I think, a specific man from a specific place with a specific request. You talk to people on the mission field, and they will tell you all the time, I felt led to go and and witness to this person, and that person said, I had a dream that you were going to meet me under this tree and share Jesus with me. That happens. So God is literally moving here. The language here is urgent. It's forceful. He says, appealing, right? Come over. Help us. Like, this is an SOS situation. And you begin to think through, like, what, what was God doing there to prepare people, you know, for, for the reception of the gospel? They had to have known, and we're going to see that here in a moment, there were people there that were, that, that were God-fearers. They knew that there was a God, but they knew that they didn't really know him yet. God was sowing this seeking in people's hearts, as we're going to see. So what a powerful and compelling vision this was. And the proper response to such a vision is is to respond immediately. Look at verse 10. It says, when he had seen the vision, immediately. So I have this vision of Paul and Timothy and Silas laying around. Timothy and Silas are probably snoring. And Paul's like, wake up! We got to go to Macedonia. What? Macedonia? What are you talking about, man? Like, what are you, like, yeah, Macedonia, immediately. That's what that word means. It was instantaneously. And then when you see this pronoun here, we, you're like, wait a second. I thought we were just saying, you know, he was just describing it a different way. This is the first time in the book of Acts we've made it 16 chapters. And then Luke, the author, inserts himself here. So he had linked up with Paul, Silas, and Timothy at one point before we pick up in verse 10. And so Luke says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, your translation might say determining, 
right? I mean, completely convinced that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There was no question here. It was immediate, and they knew without a doubt this was the Holy Spirit. They didn't hum-haw around about it. They didn't have meetings over it to vote on whether they should do it or not. It was what God had said to do, and they were going to go do it. So Paul and this mission team realized that God had used everything up to this point, the closed doors, the discouragement, the disappointment, and now this vision to point them in the direction that he intended for them to go, the direction he wanted them to go. There was no delay on their part. They immediately began doing everything they could to get to Macedonia, eventually landing in the city of Philippi. So friends, listen, we must not discount the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Every day, everything that we do, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, when it comes to living out our faith, we rely on the supernatural work and leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives because what we are doing is literally impossible without his presence. It's literally impossible to see somebody come to know Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. We need him in our lives. We need his presence. So it's so exciting to see and experience what God is doing here at First Baptist Mount Healthy. The Spirit has orchestrated everything, the hiccups, the hangups, the holdups, right, that we've experienced maybe a little bit here and there over the last few years, especially working through COVID and calling Ken as our pastor. Things were looking kind of bleak there for a little bit. Things were kind of scary, right? We didn't know how things were going to turn out, but we see that God has been putting together this plan for us. We've been walking in faith that he is getting us to this point. And I believe God has given us the green light, right? Ken does too. We've been talking about, he was on my couch the other day. We were talking about vision for the church, like what we're we're praying that God will do in the future, what we're praying that God will will really ignite in your hearts to do in the future as we move forward uh, in this new season that God has put us in. We can let off the clutch a little bit. We have a green light. We're going we're gonna to go for this thing. We're going to see that our vision has been refreshed and refined. You know, we trust our pastor as he's praying through these things. Our mission has been clarified. We, we want to go and reach people for Jesus. And our values have been identified. We value the gospel. We value teaching God's word. And we want to go out and be obedient to him. So like Paul and his team, we can make every effort, every effort to fully pursue reaching our city. We can do that uh, because we have the Holy Spirit with us. We can go and reach the city with the good news of the gospel. So the Spirit gives the vision. That's where it comes from. It's not just something that we think up and draw on a whiteboard and, and come up with all these nifty little acronyms. Like the Spirit is the one who gives the vision. Secondly, the Spirit builds his church. Notice how I say it's his church. It's not ours. It's his. And just as the Spirit gives the vision for being the church, he is also the one who builds the church by placing people into it. And we see three very different people in this text in a moment that God chose as his core group of people in Philippi to birth a church. So if there's one thing we can take away from this next section, it's that no person comes to faith in Jesus apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit preparing them, the Holy Spirit drawing them, the Holy Spirit releasing them from bondage as we're going to see. So Jesus 
is in charge. And so let's, let's just flesh that out a little bit by looking at these three founding members of the church at Philippi. And the first one is Lydia. <clears throat> Such a pretty name. And after sailing 150 miles, you know, we were kind of picking up the story here, and then they walked another 10 miles <laughs> to get to where they are, Paul and his team arrive in Philippi. It's this Roman colony. And apparently there wasn't enough of a Jewish population in the city to establish a synagogue. Because remember, that first missionary journey, we see Paul, his, his method of reaching people was to go to the synagogue where he knew how to speak that language really well, and he knew how to reason from the Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, to point people to Jesus. Well, he doesn't have that opportunity here in Philippi. There's not enough people there. It took 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. So in the entire city of Philippi, there were not 10 Jewish men. That is astounding to me. And so as a result, Paul had to ditch this usual custom of preaching in the synagogue. And he had to go where people were. He couldn't just go to the, to the, to the comfortable place. He had to get out in the streets. He had to go and find people in order to pursue this mission. And it, it was said that the arches outside the city gate of Philippi, I read this in one of the historical commentaries I was reading, there were these arches outside the city gate and inscribed on them was this prohibition against bringing unrecognized religions into the city. So they were not a fan of that. And here's Paul, he's like, all right, we're here, I've got to go find people and I'm going to go tell them about Jesus. And that is most likely why verse 13 indicates that they went outside the gate, right, to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. So they went outside the gate, they were looking for people that were spiritual, people that were seeking. And if you take a moment throughout your daily life, no matter where you are, to just pause, you would be astounded at the number of spiritual things that pop up in conversation, the number of things that pop up that would allow you to steer that conversation to talk about your faith or to talk about what Jesus has done for you. And we see that modeled here for us. They're on mission, they're in a foreign place, and then they go out and they, they are looking for people that are at a place of prayer. So it was there that they met a group of women. I love that. It's the ladies who are in Philippi praying, all right? I love that we see that all throughout the Bible that, that women are praying. Women are the ones who are standing in the gap as we looked at in the book of Exodus a few weeks back for the unborn babies. I love that we see that God uses them in that way. And one of those ladies, her name was Lydia. And Lydia was awesome. You get to studying about her. Here are some significant things that we can learn about her. The first one is she was a woman. You're like, duh, you just said that. But it's, it's pretty obvious, but it's important because the vast majority of women in the first century did not enjoy very many societal privileges at all. They didn't have many rights. They had basically zero opportunities. And in fact, many women were treated simply as property, as secondhand citizens. But Macedonia had more opportunities for women than any other place in the first century Mediterranean world. So they were, they were pretty progressive for their day. And as we're going to find out, Lydia had capitalized on these opportunities. She was smart. And furthermore, the fact that Paul and his team 
willingly engaged a group of women shows that they understood that the gospel was for everyone, no matter their gender or rank in society. They did not let these cultural barriers that we talked about last week stop them from sharing the gospel with people. They saw that the gospel was for everyone and everyone had value. So she was, she was a woman. Number two, she was an entrepreneur. According to verse 14, Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics. And purple cloth was expensive stuff. Purple material was highly popular among the elites of Roman society, including the emperor himself. It was really hard to get the color purple to dye things with. And here we are today, and I can dye my beard purple. This just blows my mind. But back then, it was a sign of royalty. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of opulence. And so Lydia had figured out how to make the system in such a way where she could get the dye that was extremely hard to get to dye purple fabrics, and then she sold them to the high rollers. So she was very savvy in her business dealings. And so this means that she had most likely acquired a decent bit of wealth from her business ventures here in Philippi. She was an entrepreneur. Number three, she was an immigrant. I mean, verse 14 points out that Lydia was not from Philippi, but from the city of Thyatira, a city in Asia Minor. So do you see the irony there? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit's like, you can't go to Asia Minor. You have to go to Europe. And then there, the first person that they engage and share the gospel with and see come to faith is somebody from Asia Minor. <laughs> I think that that's great. There's humor there. The first person to respond is from the region where they were prevented from reaching. So she was an immigrant. She was an outsider there in Philippi. Number four, she was a seeker. And again, verse 14 states that Lydia was a worshiper of God. And then listen to this phrase. And that she was listening. You catch that? That jumped out at me so much. Not just she was a seeker, but she was listening. She knew that God had something for her. She knew that there was something bigger than her. She just didn't know where she fit into that equation. But she was listening. And even though she wasn't Jewish, she desired to worship the God of the Jews. She didn't know that, but that's who she was wanting to worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the king of all kings. And Lydia was genuinely seeking the Lord, and he met her in her seeking. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know where I fit into this equation I feel like there's a God. I feel like that, that I know him, but I'm not real sure. Listen, lean in and listen to what the Lord is saying to you today. Verse 14 declares that the Lord opened her heart. Not Paul with his eloquence. I mean, he said himself like, you know, he didn't talk real well. He, you know, wasn't the greatest orator, but he could write a mean letter, man. He was good at that. He was good at the written word. But he wasn't the greatest preacher. But verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart. It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't the Bible study leader. It wasn't the flashy presentation of some sort of worship, you know, experience. It was the Lord opening her heart to believe the truth of the gospel. So we see that she was a worshiper. And then finally, this is a great thing to be remembered by. She was hospitable. 
So according to verse 15, Lydia immediately began practicing the ministry of hospitality. Now think about this for a second. She was an immigrant. She was an entrepreneur. She had wealth. She could have been like, who are you stinky Jewish guys who just rolled into town? She didn't do that. She invited them to her home. She practiced hospitality. And with no strings attached, she wasn't looking for anything to gain from that. She provided a home base for them as they began to further their ministry in Philippi. She became HQ for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and also Luke now who has joined the foray. So she began practicing hospitality. And listen, we need more people who practice the ministry of hospitality. And hospitality meaning that you invite people into your home, into your life, and you expect nothing from them. You reach out, you invite people in who, who can't, you know, there's no benefit to it for you, but you are serving them with the heart of a servant. You are opening your heart and welcoming them as Jesus welcomes all of those who come to him. So look for ways to practice the ministry of hospitality. You know, be like Ken. Bring out your grill, grill some stuff, and invite people over. Uh, you know, go out and just start grilling in your backyard. Like, we're fortunate enough, we live on a corner down in Northside, so we have a lot of foot traffic. And when we first moved here, I would just go open the grill, and we would just be grilling out, and people would be coming by, and we would have impromptu barbecues. We would give out hot dogs to people, right? We would just invite people in and get to know them, talk to them. We didn't know them right? We were trying our best to reach out and connect with people where they were. So practice the ministry of hospitality as the Lord sees fit in your life. Pray through how to do that. So that's Lydia. The second person is drastically different. Look at verses 16 through 24. We're going to see who Luke refers to <clears throat> as the slave girl. So not long after seeing Lydia come to Christ, Paul and Silas have an intense encounter with a demon-possessed slave girl in the streets of Philippi. This is spiritual warfare happening here. And this is an interesting section of our passage today. According to verse 16, this girl had a spirit of divination, or your translation might say prediction, right? Uh, and it made her masters much profit from, from her fortune-telling. So she was in bondage in two different ways. Chiefly, she was in bondage to the evil one. She was demon-possessed. And then secondly, she was in bondage to other people who were her masters, quote-unquote. She was a slave. She had no rights in society, and she was just used to make money. And verses 17 and 18 go on to inform us that as she followed after Paul and Silas, verse 17, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. Now, a couple of things about this. First, this girl was not your friendly neighborhood demon-possessed fortune teller. All right? This was not who she was. In fact, this is the only time in the Greek New Testament that this particular term for fortune-telling is used. It's, it's very unique and interesting. And it's actually the word from which we get our word python. Think about that for a second. Snake. So essentially, she had what the Greeks believed to be the snake spirit. Does that sound a little demonic to you? Does that sound a little evil to you? 
My wife loves snakes. Snakes are growing on me. We have a pet snake now at my house. They're not evil. I understand the imagery is evil of them, right? So snakes can be friendly. Don't kill them if you see them. They are good for the ecology and the biology of our world. Is that good? Good, okay. (laughs) I'm learning, all right? So those with this fortune-telling snake spirit would supposedly enter into these odd raving trances as they made these futuristic predictions. Like it was, I guess, a sight to see from some of the sources that I studied, um, you know, that were, were documented from historians of this time. So this was, this was not something that was okay. This was an unclean spirit in this girl who, who would begin to have these trances and these, these fits, if you will, and, and she would just spout random things to people, and then her masters would make money from that. It's a horrible situation for, for this young lady. And then secondly, even though it appears that she was giving testimony to God, she most definitely was not. This was not the type of herald or person that you wanted, like, announcing your presence. Because remember, like, there was already this stigma against people, don't you be bringing any weirdo religions up in my city, right? And then here she's just running around yelling and telling people, here are the servants of the Most High God! You know, just imagine this, this situation. It's probably, I can see, you know, uh, Paul getting upset over this. And so this was not for, for their benefit. In fact, this Most High God and the culture of, of, in which they were in, they, they could have thought it was Zeus or You know, the Spirit was not giving testimony to glorify God, but to associate the gospel with the demonic. It was a stumbling block for people. So instead of helping point people to the truth of the gospel, this girl was effectively keeping people from it. This was very much the work of the evil one. And verse 18 goes on to tell us that Paul was greatly annoyed. (laughs) And that means greatly annoyed. Like he was like annoyed. And he turned and said to the Spirit, Finally, I think Paul was smart here. Paul was trying his best to navigate the situation in this foreign place to share the gospel without drawing much attention and persecution to himself because he already experienced that on the first missionary journey, right? But he was doing his best to to find commonality with people and share the gospel with them. And he knew that the moment that that he cast out a demon, that it was going to draw some eyes upon him. And he was exactly right. So here's what happened. Paul was greatly annoyed, and he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So this is where things changed in Philippi for Paul. As you can imagine, this royally upset her owners because it ruined their cash flow. (laughs) Like, They're like, wow, our cash cow is now not working, and we are really upset about this. We're out of business. So this landed Paul and Silas a good beating from the city authorities, right? Even though Paul was a Roman citizen. He could have invoked that, but he didn't. But they got beat. They were thrown into jail. And that leads us to the third person I want us to consider, and that's the Philippian jailer. You might be familiar with this story where Paul and Silas are in prison, As we're going to see, they begin singing songs. God sends a miraculous earthquake, loosens the cells, loosens the chains. It's this miraculous thing that happens. And to summarize verses 25 through 28, 
They were unfairly charged. They were beaten. They didn't have a trial. And God did this thing during the night. And I have to imagine that the rest of the prisoners were listening as they sang these praises. They didn't know what they were, but they were like, how could these guys be beaten down, thrown into jail, and here they are in stocks, and they're singing. They sing joyful. And I'm sure that Paul and Silas were in there sharing the gospel with people. And then this earthquake comes, and thinking that all of the prisoners had escaped the jailer, he's like, well, <laughs> I'm going to be not fired. I'm going to be killed for this, so I'm just going to go ahead and, and be one step ahead of the game. He was getting ready to fall on his own sword, right? He was going to commit suicide to escape his shame and punishment from the city officials because he was in big trouble if these people escaped. You're like, well, that's kind of unfair. It was an earthquake. Yeah, but he would still be the one bearing that responsibility. So he is going to kill himself, but before he could follow through, Paul shouted and he said, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Everybody is still here. Every prisoner. And I think every prisoner stayed because they're like, something's up with these other two guys. They're singing. They're, they're joyful in the middle of this terrible thing we've got going on. Here's this miraculous earthquake. We're going to hang around to see what's going on here. So consider verses 29 through 34. And, and he, the Philippian jailer, called for lights, right? Bring the torches. And he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized he and all his household and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household so notice two different things here about the jailer all right the first one is he asked this question that mankind has been asking since the garden what must I do to be saved what must I do to be right with God what must I do to have this hole in my heart filled with the right thing what must I do with this compulsion to bow down and worship something what must I do with this what must I do to be saved you see just like us today he had a performance-based understanding of salvation he was like what do I got to do give me a checklist I'm gonna do this thing I'm gonna be right with God he thought he had to work his way into the grace of God. And we talked about this last week. How freeing it is to realize that it's not about what we must do, but about what Jesus did. All right, it's about what he has done, not what we can do. He is the one who accomplished what we could never accomplish. He is the one who made right the wrong that we could never right ourselves. He is the one who balanced our debt with, with God and gave us salvation. He paid the debt that we could never pay and he conquered what we could never conquer and that is sin and death. He's the one that did all of that. We owe it all to him. The only thing we must do is believe in his finished work. That's what you do. What must you do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him with your mouth and your heart and you will be saved. You believe in what he has done. 
Secondly, like Lydia, he displayed immediate hospitality and immediate kindness that flowed from a heart transformed by the gospel. This guy would have been one of the ones that beat Paul and Silas. So the wounds that they had, he had a hand in inflicting. And then we see, instead of him remaining indifferent and impersonal, he proceeded to wash the wounds that he had a hand in inflicting. Look at that. He didn't allow that shame to hold him back. He knew that his heart had been transformed, and he knew that God would, had radically changed his life. And so he was compelled to show that, that, that kindness to others. So instead of maintaining any racial cultural or political barrier, the jailer destroyed those things by inviting Paul and Silas into his home for a meal and for fellowship in a time of great rejoicing, as the text says, and what Christ had done for all of them. His entire household came to know Jesus. This is a great picture of gospel-centered community. There is no dividing wall of hostility. There is no barrier. These people are from different backgrounds, different races, different cultures, and we see that God has brought them together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus unites people. And how I beg God for more people like Lydia, like the slave girl, like the jailer to become a part of our faith community here at First Baptist Mount Healthy. We need each type of person that they represent, right? We see, you know, Lydia, we want more strong women to be, to be ministry leaders, to be involved here, to, to step out and, and use the gifts that God has given them to glorify him. We want entrepreneurs, right, to be involved in our creative processes here to have input into what God is doing here at the church. We desire to be a home for immigrants, for people who, who are not a part of our culture normally. That's why we have done our best to link arms with our Nepali brothers and sisters and allow them a place to worship and see how God is using them to bless our city. And we strive to welcome those who are genuinely seeking God, people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't act like us, but they are genuinely interested in what God is doing here at Mount Healthy. They're interested in what God is doing in their heart, and they're looking to connect the dots. And like the slave girl, we want to see people radically delivered from darkness, from addiction, from things that keep them in bondage, to be delivered from sin and the oppression of the evil one. We want to see more people like that. And like the jailer, we want to authentically love those who are hostile, skeptical, and indifferent to our faith and see them come to know the riches of Christ because that's what happened to the jailer and his entire family. And we want to be a church full of people who open their homes, open their hearts to be hospitable and kind to everyone, no matter what they look like, no matter what they talk like, no matter who they are, even our enemies, we should have a heart that's open to welcome them in. So, to wrap it all up, we see that the Spirit is the one who gives his vision and the Spirit is the one who builds his church. So how does that affect us? How do we continue to develop this type of culture here at First Baptist Mount Healthy? What does this mean for us? Well, three points of application real quick. Number one, we need to continue to faithfully share the gospel of Jesus. 
None of this happens without us opening our mouth and sharing our faith with people. We can sit back all day long and ask God to do all these things, but we do have a commission to go and share the gospel, to teach and baptize and, and, and show them the way to God. So we have to continue to go, to knock on doors, to, 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 to listen at the coffee shop, to listen to the coworker and, and to reach out to them and, and listen to the, the spiritual things they might be seeking after or talking about. We have to faithfully share our faith if we want to see this happen. Because that's how we saw it happening here. The church at Philippi was birthed out of these men showing up in the city and telling people about Jesus. Secondly, we have to allow the Spirit to be the one to change the hearts of those we engage. It's not how crafty we can be and how we present it. It's not how convincing or winsome we can be with our words. It is a complete reliance on the Holy Spirit to be the one to change somebody's heart. We pray and we ask God to do those things. It's not what we can do. It's what he does in drawing people to himself. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't practice sharing the gospel. Not to say we shouldn't have an app on our phone like the Three Circles app where you can go through and it makes things easy. Or the Evangicube, which I believe Eric used this week to lead these people to Christ. Those things are amazing. They're great tools. But it's not about how well we use them. It's about the prayer work we do before we go and do those things so that we can see people come to know Jesus. And then finally, we prayerfully beg God to move and make it so. We just have to beg God to continue to do these things. We, we pray, we want to see things happen like this in our community because we want to reach this city. This city that over half the population claims no religious affiliation. This city that is smack dab in the middle of millions of people in multiple states that could be reached with the gospel if we would just believe and be on fire for the Lord. If we would prayerfully beg God to do something and believe that he would move and make it so. So there's three points of application for us there as we look at how to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. As we wrap things up today, I want to challenge you to, to pray through how God could use you in, in a ministry capacity here within our church. You might be thinking, well, there's not much I can do. There's a ton that you can do. Chiefly, opening your heart and home to be hospitable, to reach out to people, to build community. Pray about where God would have you plug in and serve here in the coming months as we see him add more people to our number. Pray about how he can use you and your giftings here at the church so that you can continue to grow and grace and see him work through you. And just continue to pray. Pray that God would bless the faith community here. Pray for your pastoral team. Pray for your worship team. Pray for your brothers and sisters who are out beating the bushes and doing their best to share Jesus with other people because prayer is where the battle will be won. And you might be here today and you're like, this all sounds great, but I don't even know that I'm a Christian. Well, we would love to talk to you about how you could become one, how you could become a follower of Jesus and have him radically transform your heart and your life. I would love to meet with you, and I'm sure Ken would today. We would love to talk to you about those things as God is working in your heart. So may we continue to pray to that end, that God would be glorified, that Cincinnati would be reached, and that we would always lift Jesus high as we seek to reach our neighbors with the gospel. So let's pray.
Father, thank you for this picture that you've given us in your word today of how you reached people in a very hostile and foreign city. And God, we can see that if there's hope there, there's hope here. God, you're the same God who's faithful, even uh, to Paul and Silas when they were in Philippi and, and facing hardships and trials and sharing the gospel. God, you're the same faithful God today as you were then. You can use us if we are open and willing to be used, to be directed by you. So Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would capture our hearts. We pray that you would burden us, God. Give us, give us a burden to, to live for you. Give us a burden to reach our neighbors with the gospel, to, to, to reach out and help the afflicted, to, to seek justice and love mercy and to walk humbly. God, I just pray that we would be your people today in a city that desperately needs you. And God, for those who don't know you today, I pray that they know that they can cry out from their heart, Jesus, save me. I pray that they know that they can confess their sins. They just say that they confess and, and they lay everything down before you. God, I pray that they know that if they pray a prayer like that earnestly from their heart and make that known, God, that, that you will do radical things in their life. And I pray, God, that we would be prepared to help them walk closely with you through discipleship. So just be with us in this time of response. Move as only you can. And we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things.